0: Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. Hello out there, my friends. This is Tim Banal of BenallofAmerica.com, With the return of BOA Audio Season 3, it is May 4th, 2008, and it is great to be back here with all new, fresh episodes of BOA Audio. Let me catch you up to date on a little bit of work we got done over the course of the spring break. I'm happy to report that we have finally fixed the podcast feed. We've taken it in-house. We had a little note up at BOA over the last week or so, but in case you missed that, here's the gist of it. New podcast feed, www.banallofamerica.com slash podcast.xml. Grab that URL, punch it into your podcast receiving software or your iTunes, or simply go to iTunes and punch in Benal. We're working on getting the old podcast feed taken off of iTunes. For now, there's two of them on there. You'll know which one's BOA because it has the newest episodes posted, and it will have the BOA logo. Subscribe to that, and you're back to being hooked up to regular BOA audio episodes as they come rolling out. Now, onward into this week's program. It is a barn burner of an episode, my friends. It is definitely a must-hear episode for any serious student of ufology. The guest is Carl Feint of the fantastic website WaterUFO.net, a tremendous resource for all kinds of fascinating cases exploring the connection between UFOs and water. So much stuff here that I had either never heard about or even thought about. Carl Feint is doing the research into that stuff. In this Hour and Change interview, we're going to be talking about why Carl decided to investigate this aspect of ufology interesting trends and fascinating insights that he's gained from his research, cases that he does not think are related to UFOs, the international aspects of the phenomena, sea monsters, radar and sonar cases, UFOs versus USOs, water wheels, the El Tannin, Shag Harbor, and tons and tons more aquatic-themed esoteric material. As Carl will point out in the beginning of the interview, With the exception of Ivan T. Sanderson and a handful of notes in other books, the water-UFO connection has pretty much slipped under the radar of modern-day ufology, and there is so much there. It is amazing. And that is why we have Carl Feint here on the program. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Carl Feint, let me give you a little bit of background on him. Carl Feint has been fascinated by aviation since the late days of World War II. Starting with carved balsa replicas and later by flying models of aircraft, he followed his passion into service as a cadet in the Civil Air Patrol. After high school, he studied aircraft engineering at the Academy of Aeronautics in New York City. Following two years with the Air Force, a family hardship forced him to return to civilian life, where he joined a major airline, for which he worked in customer service for 34 years. Upon retirement, he was interested in becoming active in ufology, about which he had been reading since the early 1960s. The opportunity came when Jan Aldrich, a UFO researcher, asked for volunteers to do local newspaper searches. Over the course of eight years, he studied microfilm roles at the University of Delaware, exhaustively covering the years between 1923 and 1967. He found approximately 750 UFO-related articles, this from the second-smallest state in the Union. Intrigued by the fact that aircraft cannot emerge nor submerge into water, He started assembling water-related UFO cases, which have grown into a database of this aspect of the UFO mystery. His website is www.waterufo.net. Definitely want to check this website out. You're going to be sitting there for hours just looking through these water-related UFO cases. Tremendous stuff. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on April 21st, 2008. Carl Feint talking about the Water UFO Connection on BOA Audio, Season 3. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of An All of America Audio. My guest is Carl Feint. He is a specialist in the UFO realm, studying the Water UFO Connection. Uh, You can find his website at waterufo.net. He's done just an amazing amount of work compiling and putting together these cases of UFOs related to water and really trying to come to some kind of conclusion about them and and digging out a lot of fascinating details about the water-UFO connection, or as some people like to call them, the USOs. I had the opportunity to meet him and interview him at the Mass Monster Mash slash Mass UFO show back in October, and already there was a tremendous amount of buzz on just our little 15-minute interview, so I'm really looking forward to sitting down with him here today to talk in-depth about the USO phenomenon and the Water-UFO connection. So, Carl, welcome to Been All of America Audio. It's great to have you back here on the show.
1: Well, thanks for having me.
0: Let's start on, I guess, with the bio, the background. You know, who is Carl Feint, and how did you get interested in the UFO phenomenon?
1: Well, I've been interested in aviation since I was uh, knee-high to a grasshopper type. Uh, um, I love aircraft, and, of course, UFOs are some kind of aircraft. And uh, the water angle came on... Uh, 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 Much later, um, 60s, I started reading about UFOs, and um, occasionally in a book you'd run across one case that talked about water, and I said, this is unbelievable, an aircraft goes into the water, it's going to break up, sink, and everything else. These things are popping in and out of water left and right, and I just couldn't get over the fact that nobody was, uh, you know, uh, jumping up and down about it, so... uh, Finally, in the 70s, Anderson wrote a book about it, but it was uh, more on the idea of a civilization living under the water rather than how it does get into and out of water. So uh, when I retired, I figured, well, uh, this is where I can pick up being active, and uh, I took it from there.
0: There you go. There you go. And like you said, uh, it sounds like the USO thing kind of just came and went with Ivan T. Sanderson. Why do you think it seems like the USOs have kind of fallen between the cracks of, of the UFO field?
1: I really don't know. Um, to me, of course, it's totally amazing. I took aeronautical engineering, as it says in the bio, but uh, to me, you know, metal bends and, you know, you can rupture it and everything else. So to, to have a craft to slam into the water and then pop out the other side somewhere is incredible to me. But uh, evidently, not too many people thought of it in that respect, and uh, I can't imagine why. But uh, it's becoming bigger now. They're, they're doing more and more on the History Channel with, uh, you know, well, water, UFOs, and so forth. But uh, no, no it, uh, the, the cases are, are far and in, in between, and I think that's probably the reason that it's kind of in the background.
0: Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about uh, waterufo.net, because this website is amazing. I mean, um, I was diving into it all last night and tonight, no pun intended, on the dive. But uh, it's it's just tremendous. It's monstrous in, in, in depth. Where did you get all these different files of UFO, USO cases?
1: Well, as I said, uh, my problem was the cases are spread out all over the place. They're in journals, books, uh uh, newsletters, you name it, and it's like one case here, one case there. So uh, Sanderson had 262 cases in his book, but uh, and which I've used, as a matter of fact, uh, but I went to the original reference, but uh, I'm now up to 1,126 cases. <laughs> wow. Of course, I've also had a few. His book was in 1970, and this is 2008, so I've picked up cases between. But, uh, uh, like I said, there's very few publications, uh, that had water in them. Uh, uh, Lorenzen's book had a chapter of ten pages. Uh, Flying Saucer Review used to have like a couple of articles, uh, every, uh, so often. Uh, UFOs from Underseas, this, that, and the other thing. And so, I, what I've been doing technically is scraping everything together and My website has grown from nothing, about 100 cases, I think, or 200 cases, uh, up to its present uh, size, mainly because I keep picking them up here, there, and everywhere.
0: Yeah, I I really got to give it to you. uh, Just tremendous kudos on just the depth of of the stuff on the website. I was just amazed by how many cases were there and and, uh, just the amount of research that you've done on the USO phenomenon. It's just amazing.
1: Fortunately, I'm retired.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There you go. I'm sure that helps. And when we were talking before we did uh, – before we, when we were setting up the interview and stuff, you mentioned that uh, something about Ted Phillips and the trace cases sort of piqued your interest about the, the water connection to the UFOs. Um, can you extrapolate on that whole thing?
1: Well, I'm a very big fan of Ted Phillips. I mean, uh, uh, a lot of we, – we have too much uh, sociology, psychology, philosophy, and ufology. Uh, and, and Ted's the only one who's digging in the ground to find out uh, – what the UFO does to the ground, does to the trees, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, The only thing he never tackled that I know of is water. And so I I said to myself, well, Ted's not doing it. So I said, maybe I can put my paws in there and see what I can come up with. And uh, it's been that way ever since. I met him at uh, one of the MUFON conferences, as a matter of fact. I I, uh, followed him. Tough act to follow, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) but uh, i have a great deal of respect for him and what he does and uh, i was hoping that uh, somehow water could reveal some of the thing I mean, it has to me anyway uh what uh, the ufo actually does
0: yeah and you said uh that he didn't do uh, the water element did you ever ask him like, why that was the case, or or did it even come up at all?
1: Uh, no, to tell you the truth, we didn't. We, we sat at the table uh, uh, talking about every other kind of thing, you know, cars being lifted, this, that, and the other thing. But we never got into uh, my interest of the thing. Uh, of course, I guess he was waiting to see what I had to say at the convention, so uh, at the uh, uh, symposium. Yeah. But uh, uh, we were having such a good time, we didn't even think of it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: seems like most of the time the talk centers around non-UFO-related stuff anyway, so. Yeah.
1: No, he, uh, as a matter of fact, he sent me an email once and congratulated me on my website. He, he uh, had hit it looking for a, a particular case, and I had to tell him that it uh, was a hoax, or at least we signed off as a hoax. But uh, uh, I really respect the man's efforts, and uh, he spends a lot of money and time on this thing as well.
0: He's done some great work and stuff, and, uh, and and you're right there behind him with the with the stuff on USOs. I mean, it's tremendous. That website is uh, is awesome. It, it's a tool that should be used by so many researchers, and I, I have a feeling it is being picked up by so many people. On the page here on the website, let me look at it here on the page. Why is this site necessary? You say that uh, that you hope to break down these sightings statistically. Did you have you gotten to that point yet? Where you're where you. You know, uh, bringing out some hard numbers here as far as the USO sightings go.
1: Well, I was thinking about, uh, (laughs) I I wrote that probably the first day I put the website up. (laughs) I was looking for somebody to come and give me help, but I haven't, uh, statistics in this area are really poor. You know, Uh, when you're talking about the height of the craft above the water, everything's estimates and uh, uh, colors. I'd, I'd love to have a database to put this thing all through, but I really don't have that kind of a database. I have cases uh, all on date order, and uh, that that other part that's right below uh, where it says other topics of interest, uh, that's basically my uh, breaking these cases down on what I've found out about, you know. Yeah. And uh, so so that's the most important part right now to me because when you group these cases together as to what they're doing, they make more and more sense, you know, as to uh, how the craft is reacting with the water. A physical influence on uh, water that that third one down on the right hand side that that one is uh my uh, <laughs> my uh, bright bulb uh, on my head uh, that thing woke me up in uh, note short order. I couldn't sleep that night when I did that thing uh, it, it was something unbelievable and that's all different uh, wit groups there's four groups, and each one has witnesses that see each of these type of within the group. But when you put them all together, it spells mama. <laughs> 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 it, it really comes up. Uh, uh, it, it's a fantastic thing. And, and uh, this made me a true believer in UFOs. I've been with UFOs, like I said, since the early 60s. But uh, this one told me, yes, they are real. There's no question of it in my mind. Well, there you go. Now, let's sort of start then, I guess,
0: with that category, Uh because I'm hoping to go down some of these categories and talk to you about some of them, but since that one seemed to have such a a profound effect on you, let's talk about that one. Okay. Tell me what you've figured out here about the physical effects on water.
1: Okay, well, basically, the the four groups, uh, people see uh, water being bulging up as the UFO comes up out of the water. I mean, they have no conception that a UFO is coming up. They just see this strange anomaly in the water, a a mounding, a a bubble-like thing, and then all of a sudden the UFO pops up out of it. Uh, Then we go to the second category, and that's a depression in the water. The UFO is just about, say, equal with the water, and below it, there's a hole in the water or a depression. Um, The fourth one is really only one case, but it's the right guy, right place scenario. Um, The the UFO is slightly higher yet and uh, still close to the water, but now it's kind of the water is mounding up under it, like a mountain, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, that's the Category 4. And then Category 5 is the biggest one. Uh, that's called the, uh, the water spout. Now, that's water being sucked up to the UFO from the surface of the water. And uh, but the four different groups uh, drove me nuts. Uh, I was sitting down one night, and I put up yet another water case. And uh, the problem to me was I couldn't relate one case to the other. There was no connecting influence on this thing. Yeah. So so I sat down. I, like I said, I was uh, aeronautical engineering. I still got my drafting board. So I said, I'm going to make the drawing. I'm going to start from the lowest one, go up to the highest one, and see if there's anything that, that visually I can see, you know, joining the four groups together.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, when I finished it, uh, it's the field or surrounding the UFO. Uh, it, it was like a light. I, like, I can't describe it because it was so spectacular in my head. I, I just couldn't sleep all night long. Uh, uh, the rotation of the field describes everything the UFO is doing. The water uh, bulging and making a kind of a bubble on the surface is when the UFO is under. It's pushing the water up and out. Uh, when the UFO is depressing the uh, water, it's because the field is rotating down into the water and pushing the water away. So you're not when you're looking at it, you don't see the field, you just see the UFO and a hole in the water. Mm-hmm. But the field is actually creating that hole. The mounding is when it's above the surface. The, uh, the the field is returning into the UFO from into the bottom, and what's doing is dragging the water with it, and uh, it's it's kind of a suction because of the rap, uh, rapid uh, motion of the field. And then, of course, the water spout is is the final part of it. It's it's just that it's up higher, still got the suction or vortex under it, and it appears to be sucking water into the UFO, which it isn't. That's a byproduct. It's like prop wash.
0: Yeah, and you have an excellent drawing here on that page uh, at waterufo.net when they go down to physical influences of a UFO on water. There's a tremendous uh, graphic here kind of describing what you're saying. kind of can think of it as a sideways eight, Uh, being the field, Mm -hmm. uh, rotating uh, one side going clockwise, the other side going counterclockwise, and the middle being sort of like the center of the UFO. Right. And that thus creates sort of a circular thing going on around the UFO, the field, if you will.
1: Yeah. That's that's the actual picture that I drew.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, nice, nice. I scanned
1: that and uh, pasted it in there. So that's the actual picture that I drew.
0: Yeah. I highly recommend people check that out because that will really give them an idea of what we're trying to – what we're trying to convey here now as far as that's sort of like the physical effect on the water have there been any sort of uh, studies as far as I guess you could say trace cases if you will on the water you know any uh, ill effects um, that have become onto the water as a result of the UFO being in there
1: well I have another paper that I haven't published yet uh, on the web <laughs> I'm going to hold it off for the book uh, it's called heat and water UFOs and there's heat in various uh, categories which, again, is on that home page uh, uh, under in the rain, in the snow, uh, through the ice. Uh, all of those have to do with the uh, field, which is extremely hot. And I think you're familiar with the Cash Landrum case. Mm-hmm. And needless to say, that melted uh, the uh, asphalt on the highway and the uh, uh, when uh, Betty tried to get in, back into the car, the handle of the car was so hot, she burned herself. She had to use a coat as an insulator. So needless to say, that this field is extremely hot, and that's a trace. That's a trace. And it, it creates steam and water, causes bubbling. And uh, all these are different traces that show that that field, that rotating field is is hot. Uh, of course, <laughs> now I'm also uh, getting to the point where I get the UFO making ice which is kind of difficult to describe. I have no pictures of it on the web right now. But uh, I'm going to get into that uh, as
0: well. Like literally going into the water and somehow creating an ice situation?
1: Oh, well, not going into the water. Um, that field that rotates around a UFO, they, they can reverse the field. I, I've proven that in the induction cases. And um, they can also turn it off. Now, if they turn the field off, You've got the opposite situation. It's no longer hot. It's actually ice cold, and uh, that uh, I believe it's due to uh, something close to what are uh, absolute zero? Yeah. You know that's 459 degrees uh, uh, below zero. Yeah. And um, so any of that, it, this, this uh, cold mass of air is, is circulating over the water, and it can freeze uh, water because of that.
0: Interesting, interesting. And then one of the big categories you have here, aircraft carriers and other large ships. It sounds like that's where you get a lot of the reports, probably because with some of these ships, uh, you you have so many people on board that, that, you know, you get a lot of good sightings and, and corroborating reports and stuff like that. Would you say that's one of the more predominant? areas of USO sightings?
1: Uh, really not. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I hate to destroy you, but the reason I put that up is because there were so many uh, aircraft carriers coming in on various uh, levels, the uh, sonar, radar, uh, and then uh, I only have one case where i was seen going into or coming out of the water, but uh, I have a lot of big ships in there besides aircraft carriers. I've got uh, a battleship in World War II that fired on UFOs. And a destroyer, too.
0: Huh. Interesting.
1: Yeah, that's the uh, 1942 and the 1945 cases. But um, I I kind of put that in because uh, I I, I have another category called uh, up close and personal. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh,
1: uh, I have a lot of reports that don't actually alter water in any way, shape, or form. But uh, it's ships on water, and uh, they're seeing various things like the UFOs in the air. Yeah. And uh, it does various things. It it, it emanates heat and whatever have you. And you don't want to throw these reports away because they're good reports. So, anyway, that's my kind of a a, – not a trash can, but a holding cell, you might say, for reports that don't fit my water category. But by the same token, aircraft carriers are uh, about the same thing, but they also have radar and sonar, uh, and I like that, you know, because they are – actually tracking uh, things that in the air coming towards the carrier or underwater, you know, below the carrier. So uh, I figured that would be a separate category. And I've gotten a couple of responses from that uh, through uh, my website.
0: What kind of cases do you have in that regard as far as uh, USOs being picked up on sonar or or radar? Uh,
1: Well, basically, it it is they picked something up. Uh, I have ships that... uh, Uh, In one particular case, uh, there was a thing about an island. They they thought they were uh, uh, navigating over an uh, unknown island in the Pacific. And uh, the the problem was the island started moving and going down deep. Whoa. And they're picking this up on the sonar. And um, (laughs) needless to say, islands don't do that. Uh, th- but they 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 were en route to some other port, and they were, while they were tracking, they said, "Well, we got this thing here; it's not on our chart, so we'll put it down." Well, needless to say, that that uh, a, a true USO—that's an uh, unidentified submerged object. But um, uh, there's there's a lot of uh, radar cases. There's one particular one I, I can't think of it, which it is offhand. But there's one where uh, a guy was talking about them picking it up on radar. And then watching it zoom down towards the water, well, of course, you lose radar contact at that point. Yeah. And then immediately, sonar picked it up, and they said it was zigzagging down as it was going down. It was zigzagging underwater. So, I mean, some kind of control was on the craft as it uh, manipulated underwater.
0: That's interesting. That's a true U.S.O. I guess you could say. Huh?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: And then uh, well, another subject here that I found interesting: death in the water.
1: Oh, dead in the water. <laughs> yeah, that is very interesting.
0: Talk about uh, some of these cases in the dead in the water section, and, and you make a great point here for future ufologists says to have the specimens analyzed.
1: Right. Uh, well, there's only one case in all of those. Well, all of those, probably twelve, I guess. I don't know how many of them actually are actually on. But the main thing is, is uh, only one case actually took the fish to a laboratory to be examined. Mm-hmm. And the con- conclusion was that uh, it was a c- uh, concussion-type thing where it had uh, ruptured uh, organs. Uh, I, it, it might be true, but by the same token, I think it's the field, really. Uh, it's either electrocuting them or uh, radiating the fish or something. But you don't have, in any of those cases, uh, a means of death. And almost all those cases are fish. However, I should also point out there's ducks in one particular case, ducks and geese, that were found dead floating in the water uh, where a UFO had popped out of a pond, and um, another one with two dead uh, professional divers. Oh, wow. Yeah, you know, so uh, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, interesting uh, – the, the thing is, again, you have these people who don't associate the death of these things with the UFO. As a matter of fact, funny story, uh, I was up at a convention in Nova Scotia with uh, Chris Dyle and Don Ledger. Yep. And Chris was doing a uh, video, uh, 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 and then event uh at the very end, he he's just about finished, and he says, oh, by the way, uh, I just thought of it. He says, uh, uh, a week later, dead fish were found uh, floating in Shag Harbor. This is the big Shag Harbor incident, by the yeah. way and um, so anyway, i said chris when the hell were you going to tell me you know <laughs> but I mean, people don't associate it you know that's uh, just one of those well something happened after you know and that's what happens they're dead they don't come swimming to the shore by themselves but they get washed up with the tide eventually
0: yeah, it's the sort of thing that happens maybe a couple of days later or something like that, and people don't make the connection.
1: You know, the thing is, that's, again, another trace. For some reason, the UFO is causing death, not to all the fish around it, but evidently the ones up close to it. Now, that, like, again, I, it could be electrocution, like uh, lightning hits the water, and uh, it doesn't kill all the fish in the ocean. It only kills those in uh, the immediate vicinity of the lightning hit, and... Um, uh, it dissipates as it goes out. So it's only the fish that are close, and I think that's what's happening, is the fish that are close to the UFO are the ones dying, not the ones further out.
0: Yeah, and and to stay on the subject of fish here, what what about the section fish reactions to a USO?
1: <laughs> well, that was another thing I uh, 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 kind of overlooked. I got help from Miss Joan Woodward. Uh, she did a fantastic job on animal reactions. mm mm-hmm. And so anyway I had asked her some questions and then she helped me out with that uh uh in there. The the thing is again you have uh people are amazed by the UFO. They're not looking in the water to see what the fish are doing, they're looking at the UFO for the most part. But in some cases people did notice things about the fish. And I had one particular case, uh no, it's not in this one, as a matter of fact. Uh, it's not in this one because it had other features, and uh, it's not in this category. But the guy goes underwater. He sees a UFO turn itself off, and he sees it glowing underwater, and then he sees it go black. So he swims down towards it, and um, he's he noticed various things about the UFO. I, I, I can go on, but I, I won't take up too much time. But uh, he, he, uh, he says at some point he heard a little... A, like a bell thing, Uh, and um, next thing you know, he says, the fish all of a sudden shot off like rockets. They were terrified. And uh, he says just then he noticed the water getting warmer. Uh, Again, this is the heat thing with the UFO. Uh, Once that field starts up, uh, you've got it heating everything around it, you know.
2: Yeah. So
1: so, uh, in any event, these are all effects that uh, uh, the – these fish uh, uh, kind of sense something. It's either danger, sound, or uh, who knows what, but we don't know enough, and I, I've just tried to pinpoint the various aspects of what's in all these stories. You know, uh, the trouble is, it's not everything is in the same story. You get One story emphasizes this, another story emphasizes something else. Yeah. But uh, when you put them all together, that's when you start finding answers.
0: Exactly, yeah. I'm sure that you've heard the the concept, I guess, elsewhere, but where did you come up with the whole idea of the field theory of, uh, you know, UFO powering and all that sort of thing? Yeah,
1: I, I didn't invent the field. There's yeah. nothing about that. No, uh, uh, the ball of light thing uh, has been in uh, since I, you know, started reading about UFOs. Um, it's a light phenomenon at night, not during the day, but at night. And uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Paul Hill's book, Unconventional Flying Objects, right? Mm -hmm. That's a fantastic book. That's my Bible. And he goes into the thing as to why you see it as a ball of light at night and not during the day. Uh, Evidently, the sun's rays cancel out the color thing, and uh, so you don't see the field during the daytime. But the field is there. And uh, at night, of course, it's ionizing the air, and it's dark. And so according to the power setting on this thing, is what the color you see. You can go from red, orange, yellow, and then back up, you know, the spectrum. But uh, the field was there all the time, but how the field operated was the mystery to me. You know, I mean, is it a static field? Is it just sitting there like an invisible glass or plastic? No, it's a rotating field. And uh, uh, the reason I found out it was rotating is because of that uh, very thing about uh, how it affects the water. Pushing water up, pushing it down, you don't – if it's a static field, it's not pushing anything. It's just there. But it is pushing, so the field has to be rotating. And the rotating field explains a whole lot of stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting, and I like the way you've, you've used the water UFOs to sort of uh, – to help flesh this whole thing out. Now, if someone sees – do you have cases where someone sees a USO underwater? And in that instance, um, does it appear like that it's inside of a bubble almost?
1: Uh, I've never had it, uh, any of the cases described as such. Uh, they say it's, uh, there's a light underwater. Uh, they, they look at a glowing ball just like they would at night. Of course, the water's dark, and uh, it's uh, ionizing the water as well as the air. And uh, so uh, you see a ball underneath, uh, not a, uh, a craft. Now, like I said, this other case I had from South America, the guy saw the light under the water and it was obviously large and it scared him. And the next thing he says, it parked like 200 feet away from him and turned off. It turned the light off, which means they turned the field off. Well, he couldn't have gotten near the UFO if the field was on. Yeah. He'd be one of those dead professional divers. But uh, he went up, touched the craft, and uh, so needless to say, the field was not active at the time.
0: Talk a little bit about that story here with the dead professional divers, because I'm surprised that kind of thing, I don't even ever recall hearing this story, so it, obviously it must have sort of been, been uh, overlooked, I guess, in UFO lore, because I don't really know too much about this. What's the story with that?
1: Uh, well, I'm not that familiar with it off the top of my head. Yeah. But uh, as I have there in, in yellow... Two days after the crash, two fishermen who were the best divers in the area were found dead and naked on the nearby rocks. Now, they weren't necessarily diving naked. Of course, when you die, your body swells and it rips your clothes off. So so that's the reason we're probably naked. Uh, There were only two who had enough courage to dive where the buoy was. Now, when when they're talking about that, that was evidently what was reported as the UFO. Uh, They thought it was a buoy, buoy, and it wasn't. Uh, It was the UFO. Uh, They reported to their colleagues that they had seen a disc-shaped object half buried underwater. The ocean water around the disc was terribly hot, so they could not touch it. Again, the heat. Uh, thing comes back in again uh, this goes over, on and on and on and on uh, 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 the heat thing i got to talk about that uh, Don Ledger sent me a case uh, I had asked him for uh, it was in his book uh, The Maritime Files mm-hmm. and uh, in it uh, what intrigued me was two women uh, are coming out of some store or something and they see a uh, UFO hovering in the rain And they said above the UFO was a mist. Now, rain is coming vertically down, right? Yeah. And it's hitting the UFO field. Now, when it hits that hot field, it's not mist. It's turning to steam. Hmm. And that's what they're looking at. Mist, uh, steam, uh, fog, all of these are interrelated. You know, they're all white uh, uh, molecules of uh, water. And so whatever you want to call it, it's water, it's steam when it's around a UFO, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, interesting. That's very interesting. You make a good point here on the page here on WaterUFO.net that you're not a big uh, proponent of missing ships being blamed on UFOs, so that's a good thing.
1: I hate that thing. Uh, uh, The trouble is is, uh, they try to identify UFOs with everything, you know, and uh, it's a bad point. First of all, no one's ever reported a ship hijacked or, or abducted by a UFO. No one. But just because you have ships missing, then all of a sudden the mystery is, did a UFO abducted? Well, now they have this thing on History Channel. They had the, uh, uh, what I call it, the rogue wave, right? Mm-hmm. And I said, there's no doubt that many ships have been sunk uh, because of the rogue wave. I also have a thing where a commander of a ship uh, way back when said that uh, due to his uh, uh, knowledge of meteor uh, uh, hitting the ocean and very close to one particular ship, it was covered in the New York Times, as a matter of fact, he says there's no doubt that some of these ships had no warning and suddenly was struck by a meteor and sank, sank immediately. So you've got multiple reasons for ships going missing. <laughs> it kind of scares you to go on an ocean liner nowadays, but... Uh, uh, not a UFO. I mean, you, you got to have some place to store the dang ship.
2: And, and, <laughs> yeah. You
1: know, it, it, it's an unstable thing outside of water, so why would they want to take one on board a, a, a saucer? I have no, no conception of that. Don't like it at
0: all. There you go, yeah. Well, I'm glad we debunked that whole thing. <laughs> you sound like you're a little puzzled here on the section Through the Ice. Because in some instances, the USO or UFO will go in through the ice over a body of water, and in some instances it will be you know circular, and other times it will be all smashed up. So what do you make of the, of the ice factor, I guess you could say, with the USOs?
1: Okay, well, the UFO field is very hot, as, as I said. So now when this thing descends vertically to the ice, the field is touching the ice and instantly melting it. So you have a clean hole in the water. But there are several cases in that group where the UFO is actually shooting down across the shoreline and and then into the ice from there. Well, now the field is not vertically above the ice. It's coming, pushing its way through the ice. So you've got kinetic energy as well. Mm -hmm. I'm sure some of the ice has melted, but the, the force of the impact is what's breaking up the ice.
0: And then uh, I guess to stay on the cold part, what do you what do you have here on uh, USOs in, in the snow, the connection with the snow?
1: Well, again, it's the melting. Uh, this all comes under my heat category because I, uh, snow is, of course, a different uh, form of water, so uh, as is ice. So it's just yet one more category where you can take a trace uh, uh, from the uh, UFO. Uh, I think in some of them in the snow is nothing more than knocking snow off branches. Uh, and, again, this is not the UFO that's knocking the branches. It's the field that's knocking the branches. Yeah. So, uh, but uh, basically what you have is a hole in the snow where the field is. And um, uh, one of my friends uh, had said, uh, well, Carl, it could be compression. The UFO lands on it, and um, next thing it compresses the snow, which would cause the snow to melt. But I, the UFOs don't land flat on their, their uh, craft. They usually put landing gears down. And uh, uh, what you have is not just three a tripod landing gear impression. What you have is uh, uh, a 30-foot circle. Yeah. That means the entire field uh, is uh, melting the snow. So, again, that's a trace, but it's, it's, it's again, a trace of what? It, the only thing that can explain it is the field. The field is hot, it melts the snow, and bang, that's what you got. And in many cases, it not only melts the snow, but it melts the, uh, evaporates the water and causes a, a, a singeing of leaves and things underneath it. Oh, wow. So, I mean, you're talking about a very, very hot field.
0: Yeah. Is there any, uh, there are any situations with, like, I guess you would say, like, snow circles, crop circle-type situation with snow? Do you know anything about that?
1: Uh, there was one where it snowed. Uh, swirled. I know that, but that's uh, due to the vortex, of another UFO. Uh, That vortex is the same thing that does the uh, sucking up of water, making a water spout. Mm -hmm. Well, this is the same thing that lifts cars up on the road. There's a lot of cases where somebody says, uh, we lost control of the car. The steering wheel, you know, we could turn it any direction, but the car kept going straight ahead. Uh, We hit the brakes and nothing happened. Uh, This is all because the car is actually maybe... Could be a half inch, quarter inch, could be a foot, you know, off the road. Uh, you lose all, uh, you can hit the gas pedal, but you're not going anywhere. Yeah. Uh, well, that's because the craft is physically lifting the uh, UFO, not intentionally necessarily. It passes over the car, and it's the vortex under the UFO that's doing the lifting. Uh, I got one case, the Falcon Lake one, um, where the guy got the radiation burns. Mm-hmm. And. Um, In that particular case, they said it was sucking up leaves, grass, and dirt, you know, and the rock surface was cleaned in a uh, 15-foot circle. So this vortex does a lot of damage, but not intentionally. Like I said, it's like prop wash, you know. You get stuff blowing across the field because of the prop wash. But this is a a circular field, like a small tornado, if you will, and it's uh, sucking up things below it.
0: Fascinating. This is fascinating stuff, and I... I I see here also you kind of float the idea that maybe some of these classic sea monster reports might be U.S.O.s.
1: Well, I, technically that sea monster I have one really good one, and that came to me from another researcher. Who says you got to put this one up. And <laughs> after reading it, I said, "Yeah, you're absolutely right." I do. Um, the thing that that's very important about the big one that's Puget Sound, uh, uh, July of uh, eighteen ninety-three. Old. That's way before UFOs. But the t- description uh, is very lengthy and uh, the thing is these guys go out, uh, two people go out to towards the sea monster and next thing you know, they're shocked, electrically shocked. Huh. Now, they're talking about the sea monster having eight eyes. I don't know if anything that's 150 feet long has eight eyes and uh, can electrocute somebody. Uh... Uh, Fortunately, these people didn't die. They were shocked, but uh, they were knocked out. They weren't electrocuted. uh, They weren't killed. But uh, the thing is, uh, eight eyes could be windows in the UFO rather than eyes. And again, 150 feet is the length of this thing. That's, I don't know, you know, any particular sea monster that, uh, you know, fits that (laughs) category. But it was a beautiful, I I, I had to insert all my little comments in there in a different color so that people knew it was me and not the story. But it was a very long story on that particular sea monster.
0: Yeah, I think uh, I recall reading that one. It was a really enjoyable uh, piece there.
1: You must know a lot of ocean songs. I do.
0: Here's the CGT my mother taught me.
1: Look, exciting and new. Come aboard, we're expecting you. And love, life's sweetest
0: reward. Let it flow. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. It flows back, back. Before I start going into some of these other subjects, I know you said you haven't really looked at it statistically, but would you say, how would you describe your average, I guess you could say, USO sighting? Generally going into the water or coming out of the water or both or in the water altogether, you know, submerged? Oh, both, I would
1: say. Um, uh, A lot of times, I have one particular case by an airline pilot who had 40 years service and never saw a UFO. Uh, he bought a house in Puget Sound, uh, an island out in Puget Sound, and he's looking out of his uh, evidently enormous uh, window, and he sees what he thought was an aircraft going into the water. Well, he was all set to phone it in when all of a sudden the thing came out of the water. Then it went back in the water. Then it came out of the water. Then it went back into the water. Well, this kept going on until it passed his window, uh, you know, where he couldn't see anymore. Uh, evidently, the UFO was having so much fun going in and out of the water that, uh, you know, it just. Uh, Did it as a playful thing, you know. Uh, So I mean, it's it's not uh, that they have to go in for any particular reason, or they have to come out for any particular reason. I uh, I kind of look at them as like atomic subs that can float around down there forever, if they wanted to. They their fuel supplies are evidently uh, unbelievable. So.
0: And I recall when we talked in October, you said that these aren't just isolated to oceans. I mean, you you've gotten these USO reports. For just about every kind of body of water there is, right?
1: Oh yeah. As a matter of fact, that that one with the dead ducks and uh, geese—that was a pond. Well, of course, a pond can be viewed as a small lake. Um, I've got them coming out of lagoons. I've got them uh, uh, streams, rivers. Uh, you name the body of water, I've got it.
0: That's a good uh, thing to say because I was just going to say, what about swimming pools?
1: N- no. <laughs> I don't think I have a single swimming pool around. There's been a couple of things uh, I'm kind of nervous about. Uh, <laughs> I, I really don't like swimming pools. Uh, it's, uh, a a swimming pool is not 30 feet, and most UFOs are in that category. You know, scout ships. Yeah. Uh, I have seen them as small as 10 feet across. Well, even 10 feet across, you know, uh, is kind of wide for a swimming pool. Yeah. So uh, no, I. I I don't believe uh, swimming pools. People might have seen fireflies coming out of the thing, but I doubt very much if it was a UFO.
0: Okay. Well, I figured I'd throw that out there in case uh, (laughs) you never know. You might have had some crazy story about a swimming pool one that I hadn't heard yet. Now, we've already sort of talked about the illusion that the UFO was taking on water, but uh, you also have a section here on conventional situations where they're taking on water, and uh, you ponder the idea... if if their power system is derived from H2O? Do you think it is, or, or why do you think that in some of these instances and cases you have where the UFO is taking on water?
1: Uh, I think it's more biological or something. I mean, we use water it's um, a drink, and it's part of our system, and most uh, uh, life on this planet uh, uses water one way or another, even if it's mi- mixed with sulfuric acid, as it was on one particular program. But um, uh, I don't think it's part of their power plant, um They'd, uh, otherwise, they'd have to go from water planet to water planet. And uh, I don't think that's so. Yeah. It, I, I view it more like a nuclear submarine. Uh, the, that thing's power plant, that uses water as well, a nuclear submarine, but uh, that's primarily to create uh, the steam to drive the ship and uh, so forth. But I don't think that's the case in the UFO. I really don't. Okay. There's one thing I want to do, too. Uh, Water wheels. I don't know if you had that on your itinerary, but uh, that comes under this uh, misidentified thing in ufology where, you know, with the missing ships and all that. Water wheels are real. It is a real phenomenon. Uh, They're uh, both circular and they're in wave patterns. And uh, there was a scientist who wrote about it. But they don't know what causes it. And the thing is, it's only, well, 99.9% of them only occur in the Indian Ocean. Now, that's the place where you have all these seismic events, you know, the tsunamis, the seismic events. Mm -hmm. And and so yet uh, everybody sees that as a mystery, and of course it has to be equated with UFOs because they go into the water, and therefore they must cause these things. I don't believe so. I, I think it's really a seismic thing, especially where it's, it's in a, a, a particular area on the planet.
0: Yeah. So we can cross those off of USOs. Right. Sounds good to me. We did sort of touch on it in October, but let's let's sort of revisit this. this some of these stories you have of uh, of beings coming off the ship and looking for the water just to sort of stay on that unconventional taking on of water, because uh, some of those stories are pretty wild and pretty fascinating stuff. So, uh, talk a little <laughs> bit about those.
1: Okay, um, I I really don't um, I can't get fascinated myself about it. I mean, <laughs> they come down, they put a hose in in the water, and they take on water. They 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 take a bucket and they ask the guy, "Can I have a bucket of water?" You know, this is fine. You know, it, it's it's the collection of water for some particular purpose which we don't know. Maybe they're watering plants on the airplane. I have no idea. Uh, uh, but in any event. The thing is, uh, this section got divided into two parts because the UFO takes on water uh, supposedly by itself while it's hovering over water. Now, if you had that ability to suck water into your craft, why would you need hoses and buckets, tubes, and everything else? You wouldn't. So evidently, that suction that's below the UFO has absolutely nothing to do with taking water into the ship. That's – that. It, it water, by the way, in a tornado-type cloud, uh, a water spout, uh, the main part of the water is actually down towards the surface. The higher it gets, the more molecular it becomes. Well, if you're sucking in molecules of water, you're not taking a whole lot of water into the ship.
0: Yeah. These stories of the people, of the, you know, the occupants, let's say, who come off and, and look for the water, mm-hmm. uh, chronologically, are those – older stories than we would hear nowadays because it seems like back in the 50s and, and earlier or the 60s around, you know, before the 70s and 80s and 90s, it seemed like that they, they, they were getting out of the ships more often than they are now you don't hear too many occupant stories. What would you say, you know, as far as stories where the occupants are getting out of the ships and stuff, those are, are those older cases?
1: Uh, well, I've got one from 1897, as you know, uh, but we go all the way up to 2001. Oh, Wow. I've got uh, one for uh, uh, March 22nd, 2001. It's the last one I had put in. And um, this is, a, the figure was holding something resembling a hose and was apparently sucking water from the river and into the craft. So <laughs> there you go, the hose thing again, the sucking water from a river. So, I mean, and this is 2001. The trouble is a lot of these cases come late. I have a new case, as a matter of fact, has nothing to do with the water thing, but I just got it in the mail uh, a few days ago, and the guy's talking about September 1981. So you never know what date you're going to wind up with a case. It all depends on when somebody gets a a bug and says, hey, I'm going to tell somebody about it.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure there's countless ones that never get reported in the first place. Oh, yes, yes. Talk about the elatonin, the thing on the ocean floor, because that was pretty oh. interesting stuff.
1: <laughs> well, it was interesting to us because we knew what it was, and uh, uh, the, uh, the elatonin uh, uh, was a thing that looks like a, a radio antenna. It, it, uh, it, it's vertical and horizontal as well, and when I say horizontal, I mean completely horizontal. Uh, uh, like tubes coming out of another tube, you know, Mm -hmm. at 90-degree angles. Well, in the event, this whole thing started from somebody uh, seeing this thing from uh, one of these geological survey ships, you know, and uh, next thing you know, he assumes that this is a strange thing on the ocean floor and it's probably a uh, uh, alien antenna. Well, from that point on, it became up, up, and up. All UFO you know yeah, I mean, with absolutely no verification of it whatsoever, so anyway, uh myself Larry Hatch, uh, I forget the other two researchers them mentioned in that article they they finally found uh that it is well known in biology uh this this particular thing that grows on the ocean floor it's known. they had pictures of it in a book showing uh it both uh, wet and in its normal condition. And when it was dried, it was a little dried and kind of shabby and hanging down and all. But and even uh, Larry Hatch was one of the researchers on this thing, and he was the only one who had a website to put it up on. So at the time, mm-hmm. and uh, so Larry was collecting all the data that four of us could put together. And uh, Larry was getting death threats, you know, said you know, crazy guy, you're, you're lying through your teeth, you know, da da da, because they wanted to believe so hard that this thing was really. A, a UFO uh, f- a thing, yeah, and it's not. It's a natural uh, growth.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's that's uh, par for the course in the UFO world, it seems.
1: Well, it's scary when somebody starts doing it, and then other people latch onto it like it's uh, some kind of religion. Uh, and it's wrong. It's wrong. You got to. We can't maintain our dignity and ufology if we ad- adopt all these strange things. We got to knock those out as well.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and and sort of on that subject, um, there's always been, and you sort of said that actually with the Ivan T. Sanderson thing, too, mm-hmm. there's always been sort of that idea that, that the UFOs are here and that they're coming from underwater bases type situation. What, what's your thoughts on that whole thing?
1: Well, I, I don't view them as a, a civilization underwater. I mean, they had that movie, uh, The Abyss, you know, where the guy goes all the way down to the bottom uh, eventually, and uh, there's a civilization down there. And of course that civilization comes to the surface uh, at the end of the movie with ships sitting on it, you know, mm-hmm. but, um, uh, no, I don't go for the civilization. I will go for bases. Um, there are a lot of, uh, uh abduct details about, you know, being underwater, not a lot, several, though, uh, being underwater and being taken, uh, into a mountainside or something underwater. Uh, and, uh, There's what you'd call a Spartan base. You know, it's it's not very elegant. It's uh, kind of like a militaristic base. And I have no doubt that they might have some bases here just, you know, for repair or, you know, who knows, a rest stop, you know, something to get out of the craft and walk around or whatever. But uh, nothing on a major scale. I don't think there's anything down there that's major. Of course, I could be wrong. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well there's a lot of water out there in the world so it would be hard to really know for sure the the depths of the oceans of the world are pretty unexplored when you say
1: yeah especially the pacific uh that that's the biggest hole in uh, this planet
0: now is there any sort of geographical you know, area where it is predominantly where you get a lot of the USO sightings, or is it is it pretty much spread all over the world? All over the world.
1: I uh, I always get a kick out of that because, you know, I, you think it's only the crazy Americans that are doing this thing. <laughs> and uh, that's the reason my website is uh, – I, I get every uh, UFO case I can get. And you can just about plug in I, – I got that list of sightings page. Mm-hmm. You click on that, and then you go down. There's a search engine down there. It says keyword here. And you just got to type in whatever country you want. I don't care which country it is. Just stick it in there, and you'll probably come up with a UFO case. Now, uh, how about Switzerland? <laughs> Landlocked Switzerland, huh? Yeah. Lake Geneva. And there's a case there for it.
0: There you go. Well, what about the Middle East? Probably not, it's all desert. Oh,
1: I don't know about that. Give me a country. Iraq. <laughs> <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six.
0: Wow. So you get six cases just in Iraq. That's amazing.
1: Persian Gulf, Persian Gulf, Persian Gulf, past the Strait of Hormuz towards India, unknown position in the Persian Gulf, Persian Gulf off uh, Mina al-Hamani, Kuwait. So bingo. You, know, you can't go wrong. Uh, you plug the name into the um, search engine and you can come up with your country.
0: Yeah, I got like I said, I got to give you props not just for the depth of stuff on the website, but the easy navigation of the website too. It's really, uh, it's really tremendous as far as doing that sort of cross-reference type stuff.
1: I, I, uh, I, I, this thing came up from ground zero, and as I worked with it, you know, you keep saying, "Well, this is wrong," and you change things as you go. So uh, it's it's worked into a, a pretty good system of. Uh, uh, knowledge finding, and uh, like that that other page with the um, other things of interest, that grew slowly. That only had like one or two things on it, but now I'm, uh, (laughs) as you can see, I got a whole lot of stuff in there. Yeah, The abductees in water, by the way, is a very interesting thing by itself as well, and it proves that the field does hold water off because these guys are underwater and they're looking through the windshield, and they said, the water never touched the windshield,
0: yeah that's kind of what I was talking about about the bubble idea actually yeah. uh, earlier when I asked you if it looked like a bubble, so maybe if you're on the inside, it does look like you're on the inside of a bubble.
1: Oh, yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, two of the uh well two two re- uh, abductees called it a tunnel, and one abductee called it a tube. Now, when you're looking out the window, um, you're looking at a curved wall. You know, mm-hmm. So whether it's a tube or a tunnel doesn't matter But that's what you're looking at You're not looking at a tunnel You're looking at the field And in each case they said uh, The walls weren't made of stone They, they were like uh, soft In one case they said soft In another way they said it was translucent Like uh, firmed water So uh, <laughs> that's what they're looking at They're looking at the field holding the water off
0: that's amazing. That's amazing stuff. It is. It is. And, um, of course, there's always the argument that, you know, is is thrown at the UFOs that these could be government craft and it's test craft, that kind of thing. How do you feel about that with regards to USOs? Are you pretty skeptical that, that, they're, that they're not something? Obviously, with the sheer time uh, that's gone on with these sightings, it sounds unlikely. But even contemporary times, what do you think about the idea that maybe there could be some kind of you know, a secret black project going on with relation to this.
1: They might be trying to do, uh, as you know from the Cash Landrum thing, that UFO was escorted by 23 uh, helicopters. So needless to say, they're developing something. But uh, I don't think uh, this is new. I think that that might be from the uh, captured sources things, you know, the – Roswell, if you want to go that route. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, whether they have crash saucers and uh, back engineering, uh, that's quite a possibility. But being the original, no. Um, These things go way back, and uh, needless to say, uh, back that far, we just didn't have the technology. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you interviewed Keith Chester about his USO, uh, uh, excuse me, his Foo Fighter book. Oh,
0: yeah. Yep. We had Keith on, uh, like, in November, one of one of our most popular interviews this season so far. And uh, I actually, I was going to draw the parallel between uh, his work and yours, because you're both kind of in this specialized area, <laughs> but you're doing a tremendous job of Uh, collating these cases.
1: Well, I'm I'm in his acknowledgement section uh, because for four years I was beating him over the head to write the book. I said, you get, he was at one point a little bit disappointed in uh, thinking about giving it up. And I said, you got an inside track. I said, we need that information. And one of the things that I was going to bring up is, uh, you know, when you're talking about old cases, uh, whenever we talk about Roswell, it happened in 47. Of course, 47 was the beginning of ufology. However, However, the military knew about UFOs in World War II. Mm -hmm. So when they heard the word of a crashed saucer, needless to say, they reacted quickly to cover it up and get it. So uh, it's not like uh, this was a sudden surprise, you know, because they wouldn't have known what the hell to do but they were prepared for it because of the stuff that happened during World War II.
0: Yeah, exactly, yeah. A, a timeline is starting to emerge as we get further into researching the history of the UFO phenomenon and the history of, the, of what they knew, it seems. Exactly. One of the last things of the categories I want to ask you about here was beams of light into water, mm-hmm. because that sounds pretty interesting and, and, uh, and different from some of the other stuff we've talked about so far.
1: Yeah. Well, it is very interesting. Uh, it's not the only they don't only put a beam of light into water. Uh, I'm su- sure you know about the Sam thing in, in England. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, the colonel had a beam of light fall right at his feet and um, uh, that, so it's not unusual, but why are they putting it into water? Now they could be using possibly the light as a, uh, a communication with another craft that's underwater. I only have one case in that whole group where uh, somebody uh, said they thought they saw a fish in the beam being, you know, brought up. So again, you have that kind of an abductee beam, you know, that's beamed down, and they're beaming something up into the ship. But uh, all the other cases, all I have is it is a beam of light into the water, and you got to wonder what they find so interesting that they have to put a beam-depth light into the water for. So that's kind of one of those unsolved things, but it is part of ufology.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, as a side thing here, I'm going to be talking to Bill Chalker soon, and I see you have the thing here on water, Nasty. You're going to be
1: talking to Chalker. Tonight. Oh, fantastic. That was a fantastic thing. It's 26 pages long, that whole whole thing, and uh, it's an excellent um, study of what happened. And again, what you have... Is, is that uh, vortex under the UFO uh, uh, creating the water spout, kind of. It, it didn't actually... By that time he saw it, it, was above the tree line and zooming away. But the, what what he did say was the water was cir- uh, going around in a circle and that the reeds had been pulled out. That's because of the force of the vacuum, of the, uh, the, the vortex, and it finally came to the surface later on in the day. So... Here's the only one where the UFO is actually seen leaving the site of a created crop circle. So uh, uh, yes, this is a very important one to me because again, it proves the um, the vortex under the UFO.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. By looking at all these water UFO cases, you, we can sort of learn a lot about what's going on. You've already sort of talked about the the field theory, but what other sort of stuff have you gleaned from? the vast number of USO cases that you've looked at?
1: Well, it's primarily the heat, for one. Um, uh, again, the field uh, through the eyes of the witness uh, the UFO abductees, they're looking out windows from inside the craft at the field. So, again, you have confirmation of that field. So I know what the field is. I, I know what that there is a field. I know how it op- rotates. Uh, I know uh, from, again, um, Unconventional Flying Objects, the book, Mm -hmm. um, that it it moves molecules of air so fast that you never get the uh, 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 shockwave buildup, you know, the uh, compression in front of the uh, the, uh, craft. Yeah. And exactly what it's doing with air is what it's doing with water. As soon as it encounters water, it's moving it to the back. And that's the reason this thing, these things can enter water, and it says it barely created a ripple on the surface of the water. That's because they're moving water in 360 degrees, you know, uh, outward. And then it's being pulled backward as they go deeper and deeper in. So uh, it, it, I, <laughs> I, I can do tell you everything except what that field is composed of. I have no idea what it's composed of. Uh, I have no idea about the engine. I'll tell you one thing. The field has nothing to do with its travel. I know that. Because you can shut the field off, and that thing will still hover. Now, if the field's off, how can it hover unless it has a separate propulsion system?
0: Yeah. So you think maybe the field is some kind of protection system? Oh, I know it's a protection system. Uh,
1: As a matter of fact, uh, AP uh, put out a thing that was on Yahoo!, about the space station and how they had sent up, uh, Russians had gone up with panels to uh, fasten in place to protect the space station uh, from meteor hits. And we've got some kind of a primitive system where we have like three different walls, and when a meteor hits the outer wall and pierces it, um, there's stuff inside to, again, chop it up a little finer, and then if it goes through the second wall, there's some more stuff in between to chop it up a little more. Of course, if it goes through the third wall, you're in a lot of trouble.
2: Yeah. (laughs) So,
1: uh, uh, in any event, uh, uh, if this craft is traveling at fantastic speeds, and meteors are traveling at fantastic speeds, the collision between the two would leave your craft useless. Exactly. So, uh, I'm really scared about this uh, idea of going to Mars. I mean, we had enough trouble with one shot at the moon and uh, Apollo 13 and uh, here they're looking to do the same thing, and they could have rocks hitting uh, the spaceship on its way to Mars.
0: We're going to have to make our own field.
1: Well, that's what I'm talking about. The, the, these guys are experienced in the, in, uh, uh, the technology, and they, they know they need something to deflect all the small stuff that they can't detect in advance. I mean, if you see a big rock up ahead and it's on your radar, you can manipulate around it. But if you have the small stuff hitting it, it's just as deadly. It's like bullets instead of uh, uh, a cannon shell. So uh, you still got to have protection, and that's the reason people can shoot at these things, throw rocks at them, and it doesn't affect the UFO at all because nothing's hitting the UFO itself; it's hitting the field.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, you've managed to really uh, come up with a lot of good information here based on this stuff. Oh, I'm very impressed. <laughs> I'm really impressed by the, your work. Do you have a, a particular favorite story of all the UFO USO cases that you've compiled so far?
1: Well, I have one. Uh, it's it, it's in Poland, I know that, and it's, I think, in the 50s. Uh, the guy gives a description. He's he's walking along the beach. He's about to go home. It's the end of his vacation, and next thing he sees this uh, bulging in the water way off, about a 1,000 feet out, and uh, next thing he sees a, a, a depression underneath it, and then he sees the sucking and gurgling of the water. He's got everything in one case. Now, all the other cases I have it, it usually has one aspect of this thing. He had all three in one case. Huh. So I said, this was fantastic. And, of course, when you're talking about favorite cases, uh, you'd think that I'd uh, love Shag Harbor. You'd think that. Uh-oh. <laughs> Actually, I do. I mean, it, it, <laughs> uh, it's a fantastically documented. I talked to Chris Stiles. He says he's got a 4 drawer file cabinet filled with U.S. and Canadian documents on the make-believe UFO Sherrick Harbour thing. The government's wasting a whole lot of paper saying, no, they don't exist, and yet Chris has four drawers of government documents on his thing. But for me, it doesn't do a darn thing. It goes into the water it comes out of the water, and that's about it.
0: From what your research tells you and from what you looked at, you think that, It was less a UFO crash and more just a straight-up UFO turning into a USO.
1: First of all, a UFO and a USO is exactly the same thing. I I hate that when they use a different acronym because underwater it's a UFO. Uh, I mean, if it was a fish and you didn't know what it was, okay, then it's an unidentified submerged object or whatever. But a UFO goes into the water, comes out of the water, it's still a UFO.
0: Okay, so you prefer UFO straight up and not straight, USO.
1: Straight up. I uh, That's the reason I named the site Water UFO instead of USO or something like that. Uh, but um, as far as the Shag Harbor goes, uh, uh, that was a uh, evidently a, a mechanical problem on a ship of some sort. And um, it was there for a week being repaired under the US and Canadian ships right above it. Huh. You know that, right? And they, uh, according to Chris, they, they talked to a couple of divers who were sent down to, um, to look at it. That's only 60 feet of water. That's a six-story building. Yeah. <clears throat> That's not very deep. They, they had guys on the ship uh, leaning over to look at the thing below them. So, I mean, a week? Good God, you know, you talk about minutes or seconds, you know, in a regular sighting. And so here they had this thing there for a week. Incredible.
0: Yeah, and, and and it sounds like they must not have had the field on because we wouldn't have those divers uh, coming back up.
1: Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I don't know how close the divers has gotten. Of course, once you feel the heat, you're not going to go further into the heat. You're <laughs> yeah, gonna, You're going to go away from it. But as far as the field being on, I'm willing to bet it was. The reason being is you can't do uh, repair work from one craft to the other without going through the field. So as a matter of fact, that's going to be part of my presentation when I go to Nova Scotia for this uh, thing in August. Um, the two ships had to be one above the other as far as I can see uh, in this kind of a magnetic field thing because that creates one field. You know, you take a, a north pole and a south pole together, they attract. So if you have one craft above the other and you put your south pole of your craft on top of the north pole of the other craft, you only have one field, mm-hmm. not the two fields of the two separate magnets, only one field. And so you can walk out of your craft, no water, no field, and then go down to the second craft.
0: Interesting, interesting.
1: Uh, Of course, I never talked to any of the divers, and I haven't heard from Chris or Don on that end of the subject, but I'd I'd be willing to bet on it. I really would. We're pretty much at the wrap-up, but I did want to ask
0: you about, uh, on the subject of black projects and stuff like that, I see here you do have a section called the U.S. Navy and the Flying Submarines.
1: Oh. Was, Was this an idea
0: that... They tried and, 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 you know, maybe didn't work out? Or what, what's the story behind the flying submarine?
1: Well, actually, there's two. One I can't get permission to, to post uh, because it's uh, some uh, – I forget which, uh, who the manufacturer is. But this particular one is old. Uh, that goes back uh, when?
0: 65.
1: 65, yeah. And uh, what it was was a um, uh, proposal to find out a feasibility study. That's it, feasibility study to see if they could invent – a flying submarine. Now, this, technically, this is nothing more than an aircraft that they open up ports and it sinks. Mm-hmm. And then it has a, like an electric motor that pushes it forward underwater at a breakneck speed of five miles per hour. <laughs> so, needless to say, after this thing shoots off a torpedo, I think a rowboat could shoot it out of the water, you know? Yeah. But any of that, uh, that was a feasibility study, $36,000 back in '65 and it showed that the navy did have a great deal of interest in having a submarine that could fly well needless to say the navy has 72 percent of the globe to play with and they are there with water ufos and i'm sure they got the idea that'd be a wonderful thing to imitate ufos
0: they as a matter of fact there's a new one
1: out about the same type of thing except it's an unmanned craft and it's uh, launched from a submarine i don't know whether from the deck or underneath but uh it's launched from the submarine. It goes out on its own, flies out there, and then flies back and sinks back to the submarine. But it's, it's a high-speed thing. So,
0: huh.
1: but again, it's a proposal. It's not uh, uh, built yet. So,
0: how would you describe most of the sightings from people on the shore, people on boats, just all of the sorts of different ways?
1: Oh, all over the place. Um, mostly shore, I would say, because you know, uh, be the shore of a river, shore of a lake, or whatever have you. But uh, uh, besides oceans uh, you know boats uh, you also have aircraft I have one case uh, that's a very big case that uh, the guys saw lights on the uh, water and they said hey there's a town down there we must be off and on navigation it turned out they weren't off on a navigation and they couldn't explain the lights it was just too large for fishing boats well next thing the lights were up at their wingtip Wow so, needless to say, <laughs> uh, they get from the water surface up to the air very quickly. So, uh, uh, yes, there's anywhere there's eyeballs,
0: you can see the UFO. And the UFO is usually described as like a light of some kind, right? Not just uh, oh, a solid sort of craft?
1: Well, uh, light at night. Yeah. At night. Because, again, the ionized field uh, uh, causes it to look like a ball of light. Mm-hmm. And that's what they saw on the surface of the water at night was the lights, but in the daytime, the sunshine, uh, the uh, the sun's rays uh, filter out the colors, and all you see is the craft. The field is still there, but it the filters out the colors. Okay. When you don't see a ball of light, you see the craft.
0: So like a nighttime sighting of one of these would just be like a ball of light going into the water and then coming out of the water, but be in the water, too? Correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do so you have a lot of like daytime sightings, then, where, you act- where they actually see the craft, like a craft go in? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Yeah, no, it, it works both ways. The only thing is you gotta realize what the field is doing at what time of day. And uh that that's that's the beauty of the whole picture. I, see, the advantage of water is that I'm watching uh, uh a different medium. If you're dealing only with UFOs in the air, you're you're looking at an invisible thing to start with, air. Water has color and, and texture and uh, uh various other things, but uh, this all uh, is visible when the UFO affects it. It's it's not visible in, in in a regular atmosphere.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it gives us a fantastic opportunity to study the UFOs. Exactly. Mm-hmm. What's coming up next for you, Carl? Um, are Keith and I going to have to get on your case here to get your book out?
1: <laughs> I'm afraid so. Um, <laughs> I'm having, I'm I'm still collecting cases, and every time I put one up, that's kind of a day shot and. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I am working on it. I have uh, six, seven chapters written. Oh, nice. And it'll explain all the stuff about the heat, the field, and everything else. Uh, and it has diagrams in each case. But uh, uh, there's a lot of other things I wanted to incorporate in the book. One I just picked up, uh, secrecy, as a matter of fact. If you go through the aircraft carrier cases, that, that catalog you like, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I'm in the process of changing uh, uh, a lot of the text, uh, some of the text in it, uh, to show a maroon uh, coloring, you know, uh, highlighting. Mm -hmm. And that maroon highlighting specifies, I was told not to say a word about it. Or, you know, it's a top secret thing. You know, in any case, there's uh, 24 cases I have where the people are being told on the ship not to talk about it by their uh, uh, commanding officers. So, again, the secrecy thing is not only on land, not with the Air Force, but its Navy as well.
0: Wow. So the book's sort of just up in the air. You're not sure exactly when. Oh, no. It's no, not, it's I, not I, something I, like we can say it'll be out at any certain time.
1: No, no. Uh, People uh, have asked me about publishers, and I haven't even finished writing it yet. I've got to put, this through my son, the, uh, the writer and then through my grammarian, and uh, see how well I fare on that. So, And i still got a lot of stuff to write about. Uh, I, I just got to get time together, and that's it.
0: There you go, I'm I, sure. That's at
1: least a year, at least a year. All
0: right, well, you have to let me know what's going on with that, because we'll bring you back on the show. This USO subject, or UFOs in the water subjects, fascinating stuff. Carl, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. The hour here has just flown by, and we've actually gone over the hour a little bit, and I really appreciate you giving me a little extra time here i can't put over your research enough this water ufo connection is fascinating stuff and as you said it really opens up a whole window to learn so much more about the ufos that we ever could have really done by looking at ufos in the air and and we owe you a great uh, debt of gratitude just for your hard work in putting all these cases together and putting together such a fantastic website that allows for researchers to look at these UFO cases i take my hat off to you sir you've done an outstanding job of research And I really look forward to the eventual book from Carl Feint on the Water UFO Connection. Carl, thank you so much for coming on with All America Audio. Thank you, sir. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 3. Big, big, super huge thanks to Carl Feint for returning to BOA Audio. Find out more information on Carl Feint at the tremendous website, waterufo.net. Pretty simple, all one word, waterufo.net. Check it out. It is an awesome website. Moving right along now, it's time for the return of BOA Audio listener feedback. This week's letter comes from Andrea. Here's what she has to say. Is there anywhere that you list the intro music that you play at the beginning of your shows? For example, the song before the first interview with Peter Robbins. It's a good song, I hadn't heard it in a long time, and I don't know who's performing it. Just want to close by saying that I appreciate your appreciation of the people on your show, both the interviewees and your writers. A number of years ago, I used to listen to another radio program, but was always put off by the host's ego and the way he treated a lot of his guests. I didn't care for that. You honor the people you interview, and I think that's important. It doesn't mean that you believe or agree with everything, but at least you are courteous, and it's a pleasure to hear that. Keep up the good work, Andrea. Thank you very much for writing in, Andrea. Regarding the intro music list, we do not have one put together, but that's something that I wanted to do when we first started the show. It never really got around to doing it, and as the archive got so big, it just sort of fell to the way back burner. Regarding the first installment interview with Peter Robbins, the intro music for that episode is Ripple by the Grateful Dead. Great tune. Gotta thank you for the nice things you say here at the close of the letter. Even though the show does have my name in it and the website has my name all over it, I try to keep my ego in check, which is difficult in this ego-filled genre that is esoterica. A lot of people want to be the star of their own show and guest takes a back seat to their own pontifications. I'm not really that sort of person. I believe the guest is the talent. I'm just the facilitator to get their talent over, and I believe it's always important to treat the guests with respect, whether you believe in their stuff or not. That doesn't mean I'm not going to challenge them on some of the stuff they say, but I'm also not going to live and die by challenging the guests, because in my opinion, that's the job of the listeners. It's their responsibility to decide whether they believe in a guest or not. It's not my job to tell them what to believe. Once again, thanks for writing in, Andrea. I appreciate the feedback and the question and the suggestion for the intro music list. If you would like to be a part of BOA Audio listener feedback, there's a number of ways to do it. A, write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or go to Banal of America and click the contact button. The third way, join up at the BOA Forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. That's the official BOA Forum. Check it out. Hang out with us. We're raising hell there every day talking about all sorts of stuff, esoterica and non-esoterica. Any of those methods will get your correspondence into my hands for a future installment of BOA Audio listener feedback. Up next, of course, the thanks part of the program. I got to give huge props and thanks to the fantastic BOA staff. Let me run down the list Leslie, Chiron, Arlie, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, and our newest columnist, Richard Thomas from Wales. I got to say, one of the aspects of BOA that I'm proudest of is the fact that we're not just rolling out an audio show once a week and you never hear from us until the next show is posted. We've got a wealth of reading material posted to BOA day in, day out from the outstanding BOA staff. They are the ones who keep the website stocked Monday through Friday with fresh material. As we say here at the end of the program, week in and week out, if you're only listening to BOA audio and you're not reading the columns at beenallofamerica.com, you're only getting half the story, BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Getting near the close of the program, but first, before we get to the preview for next week, it's time for me to ask you to make a donation to VOA. As you may have noticed, we feature a lot of international guests on the program, lengthy calls to other countries, including South Africa, France, the UK, and Ireland, not to mention calls to all the way across America, and all points in between. And as can be expected, that stuff costs serious money, not to mention the costs for hosting the audio, the bandwidth, and all that sort of stuff. All of these expenses are paid for out of pocket by yours truly, with help from supporters of BOA who make donations. How do you do that? It's simple. You go to com, click the PayPal button, and make a donation. No donation is too small. And all donations go towards keeping Ben of America and BOA Audio up and running and freely available to all of our great listeners and readers the world over. All right, time to preview next week's program. Let me just roll it out for you like this, my friends. One of the big players behind the scenes in Esoterica, the prolific Smiles Lewis, joins BOA Audio for a two-hour jam session on all things esoteric. We're going to cover a host of paranormal topics from a number of different angles, notably the UFO scene, UFOs in general, 9-11, and the growth of the 9-11 truth movement. Smiles is going to take us back to the zine scene of the 1980s and early 90s and talk about the explosion and evolution of the internet and esoterica. We're going to find out about all the various projects that Smiles is involved with which span the spectrum of esoteric media and of course tons and tons more It's a very fast and loose edition of BOA Audio next week with Smiles Lewis, one of the oftentimes unsung key figures in today's esoteric scene. And on that note, we wrap it up here for the week. Thank you for your patience during our spring break. I'm happy to be back, and I'm looking forward to rolling out some of these new episodes as we march towards the BOA Audio Season 3 Season Finale. Until next week, this is Tim Minnell, thanking you for listening and signing off.